Welcome to our weekly and we mean weekly Wednesday night Shir. Lila Nishmas, as we've been doing the past few weeks, as the Shleshim, the upcoming Shleshim of Aram Baruch Halevi ben Yuda, Yuda Halevi, and the Shleshim, like actually probably now, today I believe, of Amelia Basara. Hashem is having Aliyah. And they bring many brachas for the entire family. Parshas Boy. Today was Rishchede Shvat. I'm coming. Okay. Okay, now the question is, will I be able to get two on this? Interesting scene. Okay, we have one. Let's see if the other one calls in, what happens? today. And. The Shabbos is, of course, the Shabbos before Yud Shvat. Many connections between the Shabbos before Yud Shvat and Pasha's Boy. Firstly, of course, Shabbos Minim is Baruch called the Yemen. Shabbos is the day that everything, every day of the week is benched, every day of the week is blessed. And of course, since the week upcoming is the week of Yitzvat, Shabbos Yitzvat. Oh, wait a minute. One blew the other one off. Is that what just happened here? No. And we have everybody together here? I'm not sure. Okay, I have you here. Adding. Add people. <coughs> now I had. I'm imagining this worked. If you're both online, can you please text me because I can't hear you. Could hear you. Do I have Atlanta? Do I have Scranton? No response. Okay, I have Atlanta here. Okay, so I, guess, I hope Scranton is still online. Um, sorry, let's go back to where we started. Pasha's boy, what happened here? What is with this phone? Okay, there you are. Pasha's boy, the Shabbos before Yud Shvat. And the myriad of lessons that we learn from Pasha's Bayi. Bayi al Pari, as we know, Mesha is told by the Abishta, by the Almighty, come to Pari. Of course, referring to the fact that Mesha was not going on his own, but the Abishta was coming with him to Pari. Parai is subjected ultimately this week's Pasha's Bay is Bay's Aleph is three, and therefore the other th- last three Makas of the seven ten Makas. Vo'era, Vov Aleph we said last week is seven, and Bay's Aleph is three, and therefore the last three Makas making ten total. She can come here if she wants to. Bay, therefore. Is the last three makas, which party is subjected to, and we find a very interesting line where the tells Moshe, "Bayel party come to party." I made his heart hot. Rip! I made his heart hard. Much better. Tongue twister. So we find the Chatzila. The Almighty is telling Moshe. 
to come warn Pari about Arbe's Makas Arbe. But within the same breath, the Almighty is telling him, he's not going to listen to you. Why? I made his heart, his heart hard. What for? What was the tayalus? What is the reasoning by doing this to him? So this should be told over to your sons, your grandsons, and all the future generations, all that took place in Mitzrayim. So from here we learn that Marcus Arbe was not a punishment. It was not something that was going to get Parai to kick in and to finally succumb to the freedom of the Jews. Because the Almighty made his heart, his heart hard. For what? So that he should not agree. And the Almighty knew he was not going to agree with letting the Jews go. Till now, all the Makis were to get Pari, to inspire Pari, to warn Pari, to scare Pari, to get Pari on board. All of a sudden, we're facing a Maka that's not as such. Not only that, but there's no way that Pari is going to let the Jews go. So what exactly is going on here? In the beginning, Mufarshan tells us that the first Makkahs, the first plagues brought upon Bari, left him left him freedom of choice. He had a choice. He wants, he lets them out, he doesn't want, he won't. But once he refused over and over repeatedly, he now was stepping forth to go to war against God. In the beginning he said, I don't know who this God is, I don't recognize this God, why am I listening to this God, where is he coming from, what does he want from me? But now that he does recognize God, as we said last week, that the first of the Makis broke through his the idea that creation happened, and the second parts of the Makis showed him, how the Almighty controls the world, through miracles that his Khartoumi Mitzrayim could not perform, If that's the case, he should have by this time given in. And the fact that he didn't give in, he now deserved a different level of punishment. And therefore the Almighty takes away from him the Bechir Chavshis, the free choice. And he says, now I harden his heart, he's not going to say yes. And this is called Mida. Kineged Midah. An attribute in front of another attribute. Okay. Pari came forth and said, Mi Hashem Who is this Hashem that I should listen to his voice? And Akadosh Baruch Hu showed him that he does not he is not in control. Pari considered himself a deity. Pari considered himself a god. And that's why the whole message, the stories, how he would only go in the morning to the, to the Nilus, officially for sanctification, but that's when he took care of his bodily needs. And the rest of the day he didn't take care of bodily needs. So according to everybody, he never took care of his bodily needs, showing his being holy and being a god. At this point in time, though, the Almighty is proving to him he's a nothing, and it's all about God. And this is what the Pasuk says, I didn't just show myself slightly. This great pomp and stance. So Pari's reaction and behavior when it came to the Makas Arbe, the locust, 
he saw that he is totally, totally out of control. There is nothing here in his control. And his servants tell him, Look out, the time is lost, we have finished. And he had to repeat, he had to come back and answer to Moshe and Aaron and say, Lechu ivdu es Hashem alekechem, go. Go. But the Almighty hardens his heart again. He just can't bring himself to free the Jews. The Almighty still had, as we know, the last two makas to give him the darkness and the firstborn. So therefore, although he was subjected to these first eight makas, first eight plagues, he still was hardened and did not give in, did not acquiesce, and did not allow the Jews to leave. We still need to understand. He was wicked. He was evil. And at this point in time, his freedom of choice was taken away from him. So he didn't really have the choice to say yes or no. In that case, why punish him? The fact that he wasn't sending out the Jews, not in his, it was out of his control. He was not capable of sending them out. He didn't have the tools. He was locked in. He was on a meltdown. Another question, which is even more severe, if Pari was not listening, regardless, because the Almighty hardened his heart, why is Moshe warning him? Why does Moshe even have to go warn him? Why do you have to go speak to him? We knew the end result. So till now the end result could have been this way, could have been that way. He could have swayed right or left. He could have said yes or no. But now the end result was indefinite, was definite. He is not saying yes. There's no way he's allowing the Jews out of Egypt because the Almighty hardened him. That's the case. Why warn him? Why say anything to him? The Altarev brings down in Tanya, you get us a Tshuva Perikir Aleph. It's also in the first Chedek of Tanya in Perikofei. Afil Mishal of Nemar, even on someone that it says, Eim HaSpikim Yodil HaSas Tshuva, he will never be able to repent. Hare, Im Dochak, when it's Chazik, when it's Gaber Al Yitzrei, Ve'ayse Tshuva, Mikalvon Tshuvasei. If he pushes himself, he strengthens himself, and he conquers his Yetzirah, and he does tshuva, his tshuva gets accepted. <coughs> we don't help him, and it's a hard road, but if he perseveres, he can overcome, and he can do it, and if he does it, his tshuva will be accepted. And the same was with Pari. Even though the Almighty took away from him the Bechira, took away from him the freedom of choice, had he strengthened himself, and he had overcome this hardening of his heart, he could have done Shiva. And he could have saved himself, spared himself from these other plagues. But he didn't bother to do so. He didn't apply himself for this. And therefore, it's his fault that he didn't send out the Jews. And thereby, of course, punishable. <coughs> By the ultimate punishments, the punishment of the other two plagues, and of course the rest that happens to him until Kriyas Yamsuf, where he is drowned. Wonderful. Pshat, Adrush, whatever it is. Bottom line, where does it come to us? The message for us is, if Pari, a Goy, a Rosha, can do Tshuva, even after the Almighty hardens his heart, 
so much more so a Jew. A Jew whose neshama, whose soul is a chelik elikah, mimal mamish, is part of the Almighty God Himself. Even in the time of sin, he still has a belief in God. And therefore he always has the kayach to do tshuva. And the Almighty awaits that. He awaits that tshuva even someone that has been so far all his life. Even if someone that set upon him, V'yata hasibes lachem achiranis, that your last attributes, your last your last cause, and manas mehen tshuva. People, according to the Rambam, says that the people that tshuva was held back from them. This is only an outside situation. Deep inside, and the deep inside of a person, if a person wants to truly do tshuva, they can immediately. They can be, Yuchlu, Ramam says, Loshuv miyad keherefayim, like the blink of an eye. And there are many different Gimbaris that tell us about different people that did the worst of sins all their lives. And at the end, they decided to do tshuva. One of the more famous stories told of the Parit that everybody knew was not a very big Jew lover, but also was not was questionable if he was Jewish or not. They didn't know. After many, many years, one day he shows up in Yom Kippur by Kol Nidre Shul, and he stands there, he walks over to the open ark, and he puts his head inside the ark, and he cries. And he cried like that the entire Yom Kippur. He stood there for the whole 26 hours. And by the end of Yom Kippur, they heard he stopped crying, and they looked to check, and he had passed away in the Aaron Kadesh. And they knew that this man had repented and done tshuva. Similarly, there's a story that's told of the Tzemach Tzedek's sons. Tzemach Tzedek, the first, the third Chabad Rebbe. And there was a terrible decree on the Jews, surprise, in the city of Petersburg, the head city, the capital. And he dispatched Why did Shalom, why did, one second, are you back? Scranton is back? Trying to find out. Scranton, can you text me if you're back? You're not texting. Let me see. Because you're on my screen. I hope you are. So he dispatched two of his sons, Zalman and Shmuel. And he sent them to Petersburg to be Vatal Dixayer to nullify the decree. And they were actually successful. It was a very dangerous mission. Jews were not allowed in Petersburg. I'll tell you the story of the parrots after. It was very short. I just made the story very short. The parrots just showed up in Yom Kippur by night in the shul. And he died in the Aaron Kedish doing tshuva. Um, they showed up in Petersburg. They were in Vatal Dixera. They nullified the decree. <coughs> and then, interestingly, they wanted to return back to their father, to the Tzemach to the Bavich. And two wealthy men approached them, said, our children are getting married tonight. Would you officiate the wedding? Usually, 
The answer would be there's plenty of rabbis here in Petersburg. What do you need us for? But oddly, they agreed. They showed up at the wedding. Zalman sat down, wrote up all the paperwork, the ksuba and everything, and was Masada Kedushan. And they sat by the wedding even. They were and Kala. And they went back to their hotel. In the morning, the families decided they wanted the two of them, Zalman and Moshe, Zalman and Shmuel, to bench the Chasen Kala, to bless the Chasen Kala. So, a whole parade was put together. The bride, the groom, the parents. They brought a few servants with some cake and drink and they brought a violinist to cheer up the situation and they knock at the door of Zalman and Shmuel's room they open the door the violinist is playing came to say the Chaim with you before you leave to wish the Chasen Kala to bless them Everything was a beautiful scene, except that Zalman started to stare at the violinist. As he stared at the violinist, it was apparent he wanted something. The violinist stopped. Looked like a regular Russian musician. But Zalman's look penetrated and he stopped. And Zalman asked the father of the groom, the father, me, the father of the groom realized he wants him, Zalman wants him to play something, so he asked him, what would you like him to play? He plays a lot of Jewish music. And Zalman said, can he play Kol Nidre? Can he play the tune of Kol Nidre? And the fellow looked and said, I happen to be Jewish. And yes, I know the tune of Kol Nidre. And he played it very beautifully. And Zalman had his eyes closed, his head in his hand with great vacus. And he opened his eyes after he finished and said, Can you do it again, please? And he played it a second time. And the completion of the second time, he said, once more. And now the musician realized that the, when the Mechal Nidre is said in Shul, it's said three times over, and the third time is with more fervor than the first two. So he really gave it all he had. And he put everything into this third one. And when he finished, Zama said, again, and so this happened fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and a seventh time. After the seventh time, the musician was very, very involved, as was Zalman. And Zalman still sat there with tremendous dvekas, concentration, and The musician broke down. He burst out crying. And he said to the Zalman, I need to tell you my story. This is 20 years ago. I was a from boy. Wasn't a zealot. I wasn't over involved in Judaism, but I was religious. And I met some friends, and I started to learn music. And it was one day, it was Erev Kippur, and we were sitting and we were playing music, 
today I guess they would say we were jamming. We were playing music and we were drinking. And then we were drinking and we were playing music. And this went on well into the night. And obviously we missed Kondidre. And from then on, my connection to God, my religion went out the window, and it went all downhill. Now though, listening to the tune of Kal Nidre, I realize that it's the sin that I committed against the Kal Nidre that sent me down the wrong path, and therefore, I see how you, Zalman, saw to it that this very same melody of the Kalnidre bring me back to the right path, to the path of my fathers. And of course, the violinist became a Balchava. A man who had no intent of ever affiliating himself with Judaism, but he learned the Jewish music for the business But from this, he was inspired from the tune of Kondidre, realizing what it meant for him. Oh, Scranton's back. I've told the story before. Very interesting story with the Rebbe. Since Yishvat next week, beginning of the Messias. In the beginning of the Nesias, the Rebbe first became Rebbe, people heard of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they traveled from far and wide to come meet the Rebbe. And this fellow came, a businessman, and he came into the Rebbe. And he wanted a bracha for business. He wanted advice. The Rebbe said, um, how about putting on tefillin? How about keeping Shabbos? Mm-hmm. The fellow was shocked. What a random request. I came to ask about business, talking to me about Shabbos, tefillin. It would be difficult. The Rebbe says to him, I don't understand. You come to me, advice on business. Do I look like a businessman to you? But yet, you're relying on my opinion in business. But what I do know is the soul, the ruchnius, the spirituality. And I do know that tefillin and Shabbos is very important for you. So that advice you're not taking the fellow got the hint. And the Rebbe took out a sum of money. The Rebbe said, I'd like to become your partner. I'd like to be a partner in your business. The man was ecstatic. The Rebbe is offering to be his partner. How, better, how, much, can, how much better can it get? The Rebbe said, we partners can't do anything without me. You make no decisions without me. I said, okay. So the Rebbe told him, I want you to go out and purchase a certain fur. Purchase a substantial amount. Okay fellow went out and then come back and report to me he went out and he purchased $10,000 in 1952 $10,000 worth of furs small fortune and he came back to the Rebbe and showed him the receipts 
purchase ten thousand dollars worth of furs. I don't do such small business. I told you buy furs, buy furs. Go out and buy a half a million dollars worth. <laughs> the man was, was shaking. The number was just it's an astronomical number, half a million dollars. Excuse me, you have to mortgage everything he owns and then borrow from everybody he knows, and maybe he can get some of such money. And then buying a half a million dollars worth of furs means also you got to store it. You got to pay us the rate, rent a warehouse. You have to have security. It's expensive. But that's what the Rebbe said. He walked out, he was a little, maybe yes, maybe no. Okay. So the Rebbe said, that's what he's doing. And within two, three weeks, he secured the money and he purchased this half a million dollars worth of this very same fur that the Rebbe told him to purchase. And he came back and he expected the Rebbe to tell him, wait a day and we'll sell it. The Rebbe told him, good, thank you, hold on to it. (laughs) Hold on to it. There was interest to be paid back. There was this, there was that. There was so much involved. Yeah, but the Rebbe said, hold on. So they held on, figured the Rebbe going to play shtick here. And tomorrow, probably a day or two or three after, I'll open the papers and I'll see this first. Shut up and we'll be rich. Well, two weeks, three weeks went by. It stayed status quo and then it started to shake a little bit. It even started to drop a little bit. He came back to the Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, please, it's not getting anywhere. You know, maybe this is not what you wanted to purchase, really. <coughs> maybe it was something else. Maybe you had a different idea. Maybe, but, but, Rebbe, you know, I'm getting nervous. Rebbe said, hold it. it. started to go down. It dropped 20%. The man saw himself in total financial ruin. There was no ba- way he could pay back his loans with the interest. He, he just, there was no way. There was no way he was crawling out of this. He came running to the Rebbe crying. He says, Rebbe, please let me sell. I'll, I'll, I'll lick my wounds. I'll at least pay back most of the loans. I'll pay back the, you know, without the interest. And the interest I'll pay out later. So, Rebbe, please. And I said, hold on. The man was a broken vessel. A short while later, one day, he did like every other day, he opened the newspaper. He was barely reading what it would said. His fur shot up 400%. 400%. Immediately, called the Rebbe and the Rebbe said picked up the phone and said sell and he sold it and he came back to the Rebbe with a sizable check for the Rebbe's investment as a partner the Rebbe thanked him and he said to the Rebbe okay what next what else can we do Ever said, I'm sorry, my friend. You're a very difficult partner. You don't really have enough trust for me to work with you. <coughs> Poor fellow. He lo- he lost that on. We finally, Pasha. Of the ten makis, of the ten plagues,
We find the last three plagues now. We find the Makkah of Cheshech. Darkness. The ninth of the ten plagues. In this plague, the entire Pasuk tells us it was a very thick, heavy darkness over the Egyptians. They could not see each other, nor could one stand or sit for three days. On the other side, the Chol for the Jews, there was light in their homes. The Medish explains there were two miracles here that went intertwined. It was a not natural darkness. They were able to feel the darkness. Hence, they couldn't move. They were petrified to stand or to sit. And another one that happened to the Jews, the light that the Jews had. The light that lit up the Jews' way was also not normal. They were able to take this light with them. In preschool, I guess they explained it was a flashlight or a lantern. The light went with them. They were able to enter the house of an Egyptian and the Egyptian did not see the light. He could not see the light. No. What was the reason for it? The reason was they could see where everything was hidden. The Egyptians knew that the Jews were ultimately leaving. And they were scared that the Jews would pillage their houses. So they hid all their valuables. At this point, the Jews saw exactly where everything was. So when they would leave Egypt, the Jews were asked to borrow the gold and the silver, which rightfully belonged to them because they worked for free for all these years for them. And if the Egyptians said, I don't have any, said, excuse me, closet A, closet B, draw, two, draw one, draw two. What was the reason for this second miracle? The light that the Jews had. This was for Hashem to complete the promise that He had to Avram Avinu. He said to Avram Avinu that the Jews would go to Egypt Then they would leave with great riches. So they had to have this money. They had to have these valuables. And that's why the Almighty commanded Meish Rabbeinu that the Bnei Yisrael should borrow from their neighbors, the Egyptians, all the Klei Chesef, the Klei Zav, and the Smolais, the gold, silver, the robes, etc. So this miraculous light, in essence, lit up for the Jews in the time of the plague of darkness, was so that the Egyptians should not be able to hide the riches. And in merit of this light, the Jews were able to take out of Egypt all their wealth, as the commandment of Hashem, v'nitzaltem es Mitzrayim. What does Rashi explain? V'nitzaltem, shiruknu eisa, mikol hakesev v'azov shabah. They cleaned them out. Chassidus explains that this rechush gashmi, this physical, tremendous treasures, 
that B'nai Yisrael took out is also a reflection of the spiritual riches that they took out. The sparks, the holy sparks from above. They were soaked in the Egypt, in the Egyptian culture. But through the exile of Egypt, B'nai Yisrael were able to redeem themselves and to return to their godly source. Mm-hmm. We see, therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu helps them in a miraculous form. For this service, for the Geula, the redemption of the spiritual sparks, so much so the Almighty helps them, He performs a special miracle for them. That the Chol B'nai Yisrael each Jew had this light in their homes. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave them this light, this special shine, to shine their way through their darkness, wherever they stepped in Egypt, but it was exclusively for them. The Egyptians saw nothing of it. Also that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could complete his promise to Avram Avinu. We too, in the exile today, are constantly involved in the redemption of the spiritual sparks that are spread throughout the world. We're talking positive tonight. We're not talking about the negative part of Makas Cheshach. When a Jew is involved in Inyane Eilam, the Shem Shemayim, in physical world, physical things in the world, but he does it for the heavenly name, so that it can be saved and used for heavenly, for holy mitzvahs and Torah. A Jew elevates, therefore, to the highest levels and to the highest sources. And this is hinted in the Torah. When a Jew is still enveloped in the exile, in his own personal Eretz Mitzrayim, even prior to the actual redemption, the Almighty has already prepared for us a special miracle to help us in our service to God. Even when Cheshach Yechasa Eretz Varofel Umim, Yeshaya tells us, where the darkness and the clouds are covering everything. Hareyalayich Yizrach Hashem, for you, the Almighty will shine the way. This is the Erbim Eshvaisam that the Almighty performed for the Jews in Egypt and so too for the Jews in exile today. Each and every Jew can prepare himself with happiness, with joy, to get to receive Pnei Mashiach Tzidkenu in our day speedily. We find a mitzvah, the first mitzvah of the Torah mentioned in this week's Pasha, HaChodesh Hazel Lachem Reish Chadashim. Then we find that the Jews are told to take se laboyes, each one to take the lamb, the sheep to their house. Take home a sheep, basiri lachaydish on the tenth day of the month, and it sat in their house for four days. On the fourth day, they brought the sheep as a sacrifice. And the blood was to be put on the doorposts. The immediate question that begs to ask, why four days before? 
Another question, of course, that everybody asks, but we know the answer, is why the sheep? We find another situation in Jewish history where the basis of Jewish history starts also with the concept of four days. We find Avram Avinu is told by the Almighty God Kach as Bincha Sichidcha Shirahafta Sitzchak. Take your one and only son, the one you love, Yitzchak, go to the mountain I will show you, and bring him for an oila. And so the next day, Vayashkem Avraham Baboiker, Avraham rises early in the morning, he takes his son Yitzchak and he takes two servants, and they go on their way. We say this every morning in Davening Chabanas. On the third day of his journey, he lifted up his eyes, he sees the mountain. And he tells his servants, Stay here with the donkey, and I'm going to go to the mountain. This third day being the fourth day since the commandment from God. We know, of course, that there are many journeys that our forefathers took. And the Almighty saw to it, they had what's called Kfitsa Saderech, where the ground jumped under their hand, under their feet. And they arrived in their destinations much quicker than ordinarily. The great mitzvah of the greatest ultimate test of Avraham Avinu, a mitzvah that's spoken about generations and generations after and will be remembered perpetually. The Akedas Yitzchok why did the Almighty tardy and take three days' journey and only on the fourth day after the commandment was Avram Avinu able to perform the mitzvah? So we see from here that there's a significance in this concept of four days. It was four days of thinking. Four days of speculation. Four days to reflect and say, am I really going to do this? Scranton fell off again. Scranton's back. Will I really do this? It's my son. Now let us examine the situation here. When the Almighty tells Avram Avinu, take your son, he could have picked himself up right then and there. The Almighty could have made for him Kvitsa Derech, and he would have been on the mountain within seconds. And boom, the mitzvah would have been done. And everybody would have said, he's a zealous, he's a lunatic. He was not in the right frame of mind. He just, boom, one, two, boom, over. If you would have given him time to think this through, This would have never happened. He would have never done it. Therefore, it took four days. From the commandment, it took four days later. 
And only on the fourth day does he go to actually perform this mitzvah, this command. Although technically, at this point in time, his sanity should have kicked in. And he should have said, uh, maybe I'm not doing this. After all, he's been spending <laughs> quality time bonding with his son, camping out on the road. Three days of walking, each night I had to sleep, so they pitched tent. Pitching tent together, it's a very strong form of bonding for a father and a dad, a father and a son. So they bonded really specially now these, these days. Now all of a sudden, he's still going through with it. Now we saw the mitzvah. When the Jews had to leave Egypt, they were in the 49th level of Tumah. One more level, the 50th level, there will be no, no return. They were shkufim b'avedezara. They practiced b'avedezara on a regular basis. They were just <laughs> He did. The situation spiritually was abysmal. They were therefore told to take the Seh. The Seh was the god of Egypt. They worshipped the Seh. To take the Seh into their house. And when asked, what are you doing? To answer, I'm going to shecht the Seh. I'm going to slaughter it. But they were told this on one day. Had they been told on one day, based on one day notice, take the Shah, shecht it, and that's it. They would have been slightly inspired that they took the Avedizara and they killed it. They took the idol and they killed it. But this would not have pulled them up more than a half a level. When they took the set, and also at that point, had they killed it on a spontaneous moment, they would have had a little bit of noise from the Egyptians, and that would be the end of it. Here, it was a lot more severe. It was a daily basis. Egyptians were knocking on the doors, telling them, let the little god go. What are you doing? And each day, the Jews' strength was strengthened even more, their belief in God, their understanding, how they're going to, and they need to eradicate the idol worship. They need to eradicate the idol of Egypt, and they need to take the concept of idol worshipping out of their system. So by doing this for four days, they were fortified and they now knew exactly what they were doing. This was a premeditated act. This was an act that was done full-hearted. An act that was done zealously. An act that was done in a way that would be Kiddushim Shemayim. Sanctifying God's name. And therefore when they performed this act, they indeed understood what they were doing, 
how they were doing it, and how they needed to rid themselves of Avedizara. And ultimately, were now fit to be taken out of Egypt. And the blood was put on the doorposts, and the announcement of Makas Pechayres, of the death of the firstborn. The angel of death was going to be let loose over Egypt. However, the Almighty says, that although the angel of death I myself though will be going through the land of Egypt and therefore although the Jew the Mitzim will hear and see death all over the Almighty promises that for the Jews, no Jew will die. But they were also asked not to leave their houses. So the question becomes, what happens to the Jew that was in the Egyptian's house during Makas Bechiris? What happens to the Jew that was in the Egyptian house during Max Becheris? The Malach HaMavis was killing all the, Jew, all the Egyptians. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu was going himself from house to house making sure that the Jews that were there were saved. Because his promise, his guarantee that no Jew would die. Sakadish Baruch shows us whom is he saving here? He is saving a Jew, but a Jew that after all the exile, after all the Makis, and after hearing that all the Egyptians firstborn are going to die, still had the audacity to go hang out in the house of an Egyptian. Any other king says, you are such a chutzpinyak, you deserve what you get. HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not do that to his children. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, none of my children will die, no Jew will die. And therefore HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes, Bechveideh v'atzmei. And he goes into each and every house to bring out the Jewish person alive, to save the Jew. This to us is a very important message, a very important lesson. Oftentimes, unfortunately today, we can come across an extremely, a very far assimilated Jew, Rahman al-Atzlan. But a Jew nonetheless, a Jew with an Ishama Tahira, he doesn't want to hear about it. He wants to eat bread on Pesach and wants to eat pork on Yom Kippur. And you say to yourself, Do I invest in such a person? Do I try to pull such a person out of the lag wire he's in? And you want to say, he's not worth it, Chas v'shalom. Tells us the Teda by Makis Bechedes, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows us clearly that each and every Jew, no matter what their situation, no matter what their predicament, they are worthy of being saved 
and they need to be saved. And therefore, this very Shabbos will be the Erebe Meshvesam, the light in the home of each and every Jew, as we will find ourselves in Yerushalayim Yerakadosh, with Mashiach Tzidkenu, and we'll find the, the ultimate Yehula within the Sidereinu, Bereshenu, Shabbat Shalom to all.